not-so-serious podcast about all things serious and real. I am Jay Kington, with always Edward Golett, coming to you from Southern California. How are you doing today, bud? I'm good, Jay, and I got to remember that opening right there. I love that. Uh, I'm going to have to write that down somewhere. I just came off the top, man. You're pretty good at bullshitting, Jay. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. How are you, man? We're all right. A little bit of a little bit of uh, heavy rains coming down on uh, South Florida, but uh, for the most part, you know, can't complain too much besides the heat. But I'm inside for most of the day, so it doesn't really matter to me. Well, you're going to be inside for the next few months too, unless your governor just says fuck it. Yeah, he might just say fuck it. Yeah, probably it's Florida. When do they not say fuck it? We're spiking high, and we don't give a fuck. <laughs> Um, well, thank you, and welcome to Based on Real Events, the first official episode of the new series we've got coming out. Uh, I'm excited to kick this off. Yeah, uh, for all the uh, you know first-time listeners and the listeners we've previously had with the Buzz podcast, we did a little bit of rebranding uh, just to stay unique and improve the show in the standard we think our listeners want to hear. Um, but we are going to discuss uh, a very interesting movie and just to kind of break down this podcast into more detail for you guys. So we are just two movie buffs, two series buffs, two show buffs, however you want to say it. Um, we always kick back and forth what we're watching, what we need to watch to each other, recommend shows, whatnot, movies, all that good stuff. We wanted to continue to have um, a podcast where we can talk about movies and break them down into detail, but have these movies be based off real events or at least real, um, you know, even if it's not something as serious as what we're going to cover today, you know, even something a little more, a little more lighthearted to say, you know, just something that has a true or a belief behind it that can, you know, add fire to the story being told. So that is basically the premise of what we're aiming to do here. Now, we're going to do it in a very lighthearted, very open, conversational format. So it's going to be, you know, pleasant to, to listen to. And we hope to, uh, you know, in some of our darker episodes, kind of lighten the mood, but still be able to uh, educate everyone on the real events that happen behind whatever movie we're going to be discussing. That's right. And we're not just horror anymore. We are going to be expanding into all genres and which is exciting in a way because it really expands our palette, which we already do anyway. So this is a, a nice new format to go off of here. Um, and as Jay says, uh, we have an exciting episode tonight uh, just to kind of head into the 4th of July weekend. Uh, we wanted to do something military. So we're going to be talking about 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi tonight. Yes, we are. And this is something that is awesome. Uh, not to backtrack, but just to piggyback, yeah, this is great. We we're, we're able to expand into a lot more genres, right? But then we're also kind of contracted because we want to make sure that whatever we're going to be covering has a real story behind it, or at least some sort of real belief system that, again, kind of created that legend or that lore. So um, if you don't know about Benghazi, 
I understand it's incredibly convoluted. It You're about to get learnt. You're about to get learnt. Today, this is probably one of the darkest times in recent American history since, I would say, 2011. I don't know if there's been anything nearly... You mean 2001? Exactly is what I meant. It's 2001. <laughs> September 11, 2001. Um, yeah, I don't think there's been necessarily like a, a I don't know, military or American-based casualties or controversy. Something that was heavily reported um, worked its way through the Senate, which we'll get into, you know, at the end of, of the uh, the story here. But I'm trying to think of something bigger that's happened since then. And and there's not there's been some attacks on you know bases or bombing stuff like that, but nothing as intense i'd say as as what this story is about to get into and this is a um it's a long story you know we're going to try and make this as brief as we can but really the the timeline we're looking at here is the u.s the u.s's efforts into stabilizing a country to try and add democracy to it though going through a whole revolution and then what we're looking at after that is basically the fallout from all that right the instability in the region um, we're going to get into local militias and kind of gangs and the fight for arms, which leads to the U.S. presence being there still while others are gone. And then, of course, the fateful uh, night where four Americans lost their life, including a uh, current uh, U.S. ambassador. No longer current, but he was current at the time, I guess I should say. Um, you know, and I can't think of the last time a political figure has been killed or assassinated and i don't know man I, i'm trying to think of our when, when's the last time in our lifetimes that has happened outside of this uh, i'm sure there's uh been other times in recent memory but nothing that comes to mind immediately but you know i think of scary situations like this uh you think back to um the Olympics in the reagan area era uh whenever terrorists took over the olympics uh in Oh my gosh, my friend would kill me if I if I said this wrong. But um, I was say seventy six. Yeah, it was in seventy six, but the country was uh, Iran. It, was it? Is it Iran? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my friend's dad was actually there um, during that. Oh no, it was seventy two. Seventy two. Yeah, you're close though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the Summer Olympics. I don't. We're movie know. buffs, not history buffs. Yeah, I don't even know if Ronald Reagan was in office then. <laughs> Again. Movie buffs, not history buffs. <laughs> <laughs> Ronald Reagan, eighty-one to eighty-nine. He was not Ronald. Ronnie, good old Ronnie, was more with uh, Escobar, who was? Reagan, the drugs, and Iran Contra. Who was before Reagan? Was it Carter? Good thing we have the internet. <laughs> um, I don't know. I want to. Yeah, I think it is Carter. I do believe you're right. We'll probably oh, time one point for EJ. One Maybe point for EJ. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Don't hate me, America. Um, so, yeah, we are talking about 13 Hours, The Secret Soldier of Benghazi. Before that, I'd like to get into a little bit of our old format and talk about what we're watching. Jay, why don't you take hey, us off? It was Gerald Ford anyway. Jimmy Carter was, wasn't in office anyway. So Gerald Ford would be the president. Fuck. 
<laughs> Alrighty. Um, outside of watching this movie two weeks ago, before we decided to cover this movie, I've watched this movie two more times over the past two days. Uh, I love this event. I love the the American story behind it and that patriotic cause. So I've watched 13 hours uh, several times. I recently got into Billions, which is a pretty great show on Showtime. And then I also recently watched uh, Eurovision, the Tale of Fire Saga on Netflix, which is Will Ferrell's and um, Rachel McAdams' new movie. About, I have seen uh, the trailer. Kind of making fun. I sent you the trailer, but it's kind of making fun of Fire Arcade of Monsters and Men, making fun of like that Icelandic rock scene. And it is, it's a great, it is a really good, Ah, great movie. I'll go ahead and say great. I was teetering on good or great, but it is it's a really great movie. I was I watched it by myself and you always laugh more when I feel like you're with other people. <laughs> I was cracking up on, on the couch watching it. Um and additionally the the music that they've made for it is is pretty epic in its own right as well. So great, great Will Ferrell movie. If you like Will Ferrell comedies, you have to check it out. A little different than most, but it is still very good. Um outside of that, dude, I don't know can't really remember what else i've been watching still doing the last kingdom a little bit um i think that's it buddy what are you watching uh well that's awesome honestly eurovision's on my list so i've heard about the same the same reviews as what you gave it right there like if you like will ferrell you're gonna give it a shot i also like rachel mcadams i think uh i think she's funny in her own right i I love her in that movie game night uh, a lot she is, and if I don't know if it's actually her singing or not, I know it is actually Will Ferrell singing. But if it actually is Rachel McAdams singing, holy crap, she's got pipes on her. I have to find that out. I'm gonna I'm gonna look uh, after this to to see. But for me right now, what I'm watching and the only thing I'm watching right now is The Sopranos. Man, I've never seen it before, so I'm uh, taking a deep dive with my girlfriend just to pass the time right now. But it is I'm on. Season two finale tonight. After this, we'll probably watch the last episode and then on to season three. But um, I love it. Very good. I mean, as recommended by everyone throughout time that this movie yeah, is fantastic. I, you know, I, this, this, I know this seems blasphemous, right. but I've not watched it either. I mean, I've seen episodes, but never like I, never the, the full season. Yeah, like that's what I did too, man. I would always like somebody would watch it or I would start episode one. And I think I watched episode one like three times. And finally, someone told me they were like, yeah, dude. The first season can be a little weird because it's late 90s and it's kind of hard to get into for a second. But once it catches its groove, it's it's really good. It, it, they're right. Like it's season two is, is way – not way better. Season one like really got good after like four episodes. I was really into the characters and now I'm just kind of like – I'm in that hooked mode where it's like Breaking Bad grabbed me and I'm just in binge mode right now. So yeah, definitely, man, check it out. Like it's it's worth it during COVID time. Anything else besides that? Honestly, no, man. Work's been crazy, so I haven't had much time to, to catch up on anything else that I've wanted to right now. So I am going to check out Eurovision, though. That is, I'll probably be watching that this weekend. And I also have plans to watch. Um, somebody gave me the recommendation for Alone on Netflix. Uh, it's a wilderness survival show that sounds yeah, pretty good. Not a cable show. I, can't, I, mean, I think it might be Discovery probably and then netflix brought it up i bought it up but it's like naked and afraid but clothed basically but it sounds really interesting so i'm gonna dive into that and then i, I don't know what else man i've got to jump, jump back in the movie scene kate and i are waiting to watch uh interstellar again because um 
that movie is just so damn good. But we bought a new couch and it hasn't arrived, so we're sitting on camping chairs for the moment. So I'd rather watch it on a nice couch and get real high and enjoy that movie. Yeah, this is why you don't throw away your old couch until you get the new couch, bud. Dude, it was supposed to arrive tomorrow, and then now the delivery company is fucked up because of COVID. So it's a whole process, and we're at least two weeks out. So we're chilling on camping mm. chairs right now, man. It's fun. That's rough, buddy. That's rough. But let's go ahead and get into it. Let's give them a let's brief overview of, of the Benghazi situation. Uh, then we'll get into kind of the movie details a little bit, and then we'll go ahead and get into a bit more detail around how everything actually played out, you know, not minute by minute, but give you guys a, a better idea of the intricacies of this whole catastrophe. So um, on September 11th, 2012, that's going to be the 11th anniversary of September 11th, the U.S. Ambassador of Libya, Chris Stevens, was visiting a consulate in Benghazi. Uh, the night the consulate was attacked, or that night the consulate was attacked by a large force of Libyan terrorists incinerating it in the process. After a while, a CIA compound sent a nearby quick reaction force, a QRF if we refer to them just in that terminology, quick reaction force, to help. They were able to bring back all but two people alive. Those two people were killed by smoke inhalation. One of them was the ambassador himself, Chris Stevens. The other one was Sean Smith, who was the uh, IT guy for that facility. So mm -hmm. IT guy and the ambassador both lost uh, their lives. Once they arrived back at the CIA compound, um, this is actually after the, the quick reaction force, the QRF went in, helped get everyone out. They go back to the CIA compound. It's only 1.2 miles away. Um, after they get back to the compound, a series of large assaults were waged on that compound by that those same kind of terrorists and local militias uh, that were effectively, for the most part, effectively repelled by a very small American force there. Uh, they are reinforced in the middle of the night by a few more military contractors, but even with those reinforcements, two more were killed by mortar fire. Uh, they were rescued in the morning by local forces. Uh, and they reference this in the movie, but it's also, you know, a very kind of interesting fact. This is, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is basically like a 2012 Alamo, a, a, a very small <laughs> amount of Americans holding off, you know, hundreds of attackers to save the lives of, I think, 26 or 28 CIA staffers that were in that CIA annex that weren't even, no one even knew they were in the country. Uh, so very kind of hectic situation as far as clandestine uh, warfare goes and classified CIA locations that not everyone in the Senate or even the White House even was aware were actually in place. So there's kind of that issue with the CIA having a little bit more overreach and then, you know, some bad things can happen and something indeed uh, did happen. But EJ, why don't you go ahead and, and kind of cover briefly just like the movie details on this. If you want to go through, you know, studio director, all that good stuff. I've got actors as well if you need. Why not? Yeah, I mean, the the studio Paramount uh, released this uh, directed by Mr. Blow em Up and Shoot em Up and I Make Stuff for Teenage Boys, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. My God, dude. Actually, I've watched Armageddon 8 billion times now, and it's still love it every time. I don't care how bad it is. Has but, he ever made a movie where he, there's not a fire involved? No. That is no. that is a definite no. Like, the, you don't see Michael Bay directing a love story, do you? Or I guess he could. But, but then something up. 
somebody has to take it. You know what? I just need him to do a movie with Liam Neeson where they are in love and then <laughs> and then his wife gets killed or kidnapped or daughter gets kidnapped and then Liam Neeson just goes full blown Neeson. Yeah, I just want to see like the Toy Story remake, but filmed by Michael Bay. <laughs> you know, I think there are a bunch of YouTube tra- like trailers out there of people redoing movies in Michael Bay like fashion and yeah, their I mean, Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, cast here for this uh, really quickly. I won't go into too deep, but we have Mr. John Krasinski, which is this was what 2016 coming out so he's still got that title of jim from the office here not yet that uh that certified action drama horror hero that we know today um so he's got a bit of a, a bias towards him coming into this and i remember watching this movie and be like "Ooh, i don't know if he can pull this off but he yeah. can um so we got john krasinski well and ironically enough his uh his name in the in the movie is is Jack Silva, right? Yeah, port- I mean, which is he's funny. Portraying a real player, but he's also Jack Ryan. He's also Jack Ryan, which is my god, fantastic! Love that show. It's so good. It's so good. Um, I love all those movies too. I need you know. I've read a couple of the books. Need to read more of them. They're literally my grandfather has a shelf lined up with them. So I got it. I love Tom Clancy to death, but I can't read so. <laughs> update me on them. I keep telling you audiobooks, man. Just go on a fucking road trip and just grab an audiobook. Yeah, I can't listen either. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, so we also have Pablo Schreiber, which you just uh, taught me a minute ago. That is Lee Schreiber's brother. Shocked. Um, Chris Baranto, who would have known? He was he was actually one of my favorites in this movie. I, I really liked his... I mean, there's some lesser-name actors in here that do a great job. You know, like I don't yeah. want to overlook like James Badge Dale, who plays you know Tyrone Woods, who they refer to as Roan. Uh, you know David Denham, who's Dave Boone Benton. Uh, Dominic Famusa goes by Tig in the in the movie, and uh, Max Martini, who's Oz, who is just a badass throughout the movie. But then they have some other, you know, familiar faces in there as well, um, like uh, David Constable. Uh, he plays Bob. He's a CIA head, and he is also in the show billions he's like the 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 office manager for the hedge fund so it was, it was weird seeing him like in between like because we've been watching that pretty consistently and watching this and seeing like just his change in range of being like the cocky flashy money yeah. guy and then being like the you know government cia guy which he's in you know, uh, the other notable thing that he's from is uh breaking bad he's also he was gail jesse kills him in the in the show man um he was the other yeah, chemist yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we also had, and I, uh, is it Toby Stevens? Is that um, who I'm thinking of? Who was uh, in the office as well? No, not Toby Stevens. Way off there. Who was the guy in the office who was married to Pam originally? I can't remember his name. I gotta, I gotta find it really quickly. But there was the the guy uh, in this movie. Um, he was uh, also in the office as well. That's his name, David Denman. David Denman. He was married to Pam, and then Jim John Krasinski took him from her. Oh, that's Boone. Okay, makes sense. Makes yeah, sense. there is a lot of um, not big name actors in here, really. I mean, I'd say in today's world, biggest ones you're gonna know are John Krasinski and and, and Pablo Schreiber, because he's from uh, Orange Is the New Black. Uh, he was on the HBO show uh, The Brink, which 
got canceled after one season, which was ridiculous because that was such a good, uh, <laughs> such a funny show. Um, but also in uh, like Den of Thieves, which is another kind of low key. Good oh, movie. Den of Thieves, great. Yeah, but you know they uh, just confirmed a second movie finally. Oh really? Oh, that's yeah. so a follow up to like the London Diamond Heist. Oh, I don't want to ruin it for a new one, but very nice. But uh, yeah, so not a lot of big names in the movie, which honestly I prefer in any wartime movie or serious conflict movie because it's easier to have that suspension of disbelief and you know like with Krasinski going into this this is before Jack Ryan this is before um a quiet place right so this was before he proved himself that he could be more than a comedy star but I do like this approach of, of having lesser known actors because you don't have that barrier of knowing a previous character right you can kind of just dive in full force and even like pablo schubert wasn't that big at the time he's, he's bigger now but um, i don't know what else he's been in besides this movie to be honest den of thieves orange is the new black oh yeah you were just saying that weren't you he's like, uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> i'll be cu- i'll be cutting this one out in post Keep <laughs> it, it in i like it i like it but um you know outside of that um when was the the movie was released on uh, what day? It was released on an election year, which is what many people would speculate that that was on purpose because yeah, twenty sixteen in January twenty sixteen. Um, as far as the budget, fifty million dollars went. Um, opening weekend, sixteen million dollars. Uh, gross in the USA, fifty-two million dollars. Cumulative wide world gross, sixty-nine million. So they were profitable in it. Uh, I mean, what Michael Bay movie won't be profitable in it? Um, and as far as six underground, baby, that shit sucked. <laughs> um, <laughs> shot in Malta, Morocco, in the USA. Uh, as far as mm. languages go, we got English. We got a little bit of Arabic in there as well. Now that you're all up to speed. If you haven't seen this movie, I highly suggest going and seeing it. Um, there are still some people today that don't even know this thing happened. It blows my mind. It, it, it was covered heavily in the U.S. media. Um, several investigations, I believe a total of 10 investigations. Um, I think the majority of that was by Republicans aimed at the opposition of the Democrats. And then mm-hmm. several of those were from the, you know, already internal channels of the Senate, House or Intelligence Committee, stuff of that nature. Um, and if you followed the elections or anything, uh, Hillary Clinton has probably been questioned about this at least nine times, I would imagine. Same with Obama and, and really anyone in that administration that when all this was happening. So this happened at night. Um you know, kind of before we go into all these details, this happened about 9.30, 9.40 p.m. Um, I don't even know what I call that time frame. I'm just going to say Libyan time, uh, <laughs> which translates to about 3.30, 3.40 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So while this shit was going off, I mean, people were at work. They were in the office, and you know, the situation was full, and it just is a very convoluted sticky situation again dealing with that clandestine warfare and being in places where maybe not supposed to be or or definitely not safe being but before we get into the actual events it's important that we understand the overall landscape of the region the u.s intervention in the government the destabilization the 
trying to make it a democratic state, right? Basically one where the individuals, the people can go and vote for those in power. Um, Unfortunately, in today, you know, 2020 standards, Libya is a failed state. Um, There's conflict every single day there. They do have slave markets there. There is active slave trading going on currently today in Libya. So this is not um, by any means going to leave the best impression of the United States government on your mind. No, but I will say flights to Libya are hella cheap. You can hella get there hella cheap. I was wondering, yeah. I was like, Damn, I kind of want to go there because like they're literally just selling dope ass firearms for so dirt cheap. Like I was looking at some of the, the stuff in the market and I was like, yeah, I want that. Yeah, you might as well just kiss that wish goodbye. And also, yeah, you'll never get, I mean, I think a travel ban's probably up now on it, but still restricted. It's like going to Afghanistan. It's like going to Iraq. Like you, even if there's no travel ban, so scrutinized with customs, it wouldn't matter. You know? Yeah, it doesn't matter. But yes, Jay, what you were saying, I like to back it up here because I had to do much like what you were just saying. Um, it's an issue that not many people know about, or if they do know about it, they know very little. Uh, just maybe they associate it with this film. But I want to back it up to what led to the Libyan Revolution. So it's kind of really hard to, it's, it's a lot to cover. So very briefly, I just want to go over this. But in early 2011, amid a wave of popular protests in, in countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa, largely peaceful demonstrations against established regimes brought quick transfers of powers in Egypt and Tunisia. However, in Libya, an uprising against a four-decade rule of Muammar al-Gaddafi led to a civil war and an international military intervention. Let now, me just intervene right here, right? Because this is something that should be noted. I think Gaddafi was really one of the last... I don't want to... The word great sounds horrible because I don't want to like make them sound like they're a, a great historical figure, but he, he is one of the last great dictators that we have seen, right? Someone who just completely impoverishes his whole nation for his own beneficial gain. And this lasted for four decades, right? I mean, we're talking the same likes of a Fidel Castro, of a of Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Of yeah. Saddam Hussein. We're talking one of those dictators. We're talking the big dog dictators. If there's a Def Jam, you know, dictator fighting game that's coming out he's going to be one of the primary characters in it yeah but they should just showcase him with a bullet in his head just to stop all the oh dildo in the ass is so much better bro they had the whole term get gaddafi <laughs> he was penetrated by his own citizens dude he was i actually just went back and rewatched that video today and he dude he got it's a way to go out Rightfully so. I mean, the dude, deserved, he actually deserved it worse. Should have just tore him limb from limb. Yep. But these protesters called for Gaddafi to step down and for the release of political prisoners. Libyan security forces used water cannons and rubber bullets against the crowds. All, all the while, Gaddafi denies this is true, and that is not the case. But as the protests inten- intensified with demonstrators taking control of Benghazi and spreading into Tripoli, the, the nation's capital, Uh, The Libyan government began to use lethal force, such as the use of live ammunition, and even going as far as to attacking them with tanks and from the air with warplanes and gunships. So that's fucking terrifying. Can you just imagine being at a peaceful present uh, protest and then all of a sudden a fucking airship comes in and just fires upon you and blows you to smithereens? 
Yeah, no. dude, it's almost like being an enemy of the United States, like any any major Middle Eastern country. You know, it's like it's crazy people would just bomb you from the skies. Yeah, dude. So this this sudden escalation of violence led to foreign leaders and human rights organizations to intervene, and also Gaddafi's son was forced to go on live television and say, "If this keeps on escalating, this will lead to a civil war." A clash was continued, and Gaddafi's hold on power weakened as Libyan military units increasingly sided with the opposition. International pressure increased, Libyan funds were frozen, and travel bans were put on the country. Gaddafi blamed the younger generation, saying that they were using hallucinogenic drugs and blaming al-Qaeda for the increased tensions in the area. So this it, was dude, summer, it was the summer of love in Libya. Everyone's just dropping acid, titties out, having promiscuous sex. So over the next month, the rebellion began to take control of much of the eastern part of the country, and Gaddafi still controlled enough of the military to remain in power. Now, I'm skipping over a lot here, but months, months went by and Gaddafi remained in power. But in August of 2011, rebel forces advanced to the outskirts of the capital of Tripoli, took control of the strategic areas, and soon advanced into Tripoli, establishing some of the areas of the capital. This forced Gaddafi into hiding. By early September, rebel forces had secured the capital and effectively removed Gaddafi from power. But it wasn't until October 20th of 2011 that Gaddafi was found, dragged from his hiding place in his hometown, and brutally murdered. In the streets. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like Saddam. Like you know, they go away. Like they act all tough, and they go away and run and hide, and they get found. And um, you know, I mean, when's the last time the United States has ever hung someone, right? But we were there. We were present while they hung Saddam. We were, but I mean, again, we don't have any power in that country, so that's up to their. We weren't their... on video, but you know, we were there. I know. Well, look, look at all these, the, all these, all we these leaders. Like the rope. Oh yeah, we did. All these leaders are such cowards. I mean, look at fucking uh, Hitler, for example. The dude was so paranoid of being caught that he ate a cyanide pill and then instantly shot himself in the head just so he wouldn't have to suffer the American consequences as they were fucking bombing down on Berlin. Well, he was also very high on meth the whole time. And cocaine. And cocaine. But if you take meth, I don't know why you need cocaine, but I don't know. I've never tried meth. Just no, well, I mean, I'm just saying, Jay. Mo- Molly is meth, you know. I'm just got a little hint of meth. Yeah, that's true. I'm sorry, Mom, too. I've never done drugs in my life. Um, so, Jay, this leads us into the question why was the U.S. in Libya? And please, I'd love for you to explain this to us. Yes, so, alrighty, pull up a seats children oh uncle jay is about to light the old corn cob pipe and we're gonna have a little conversation here oh my god is it is it nighttime out right now are you about to just yeah. like tell us a little ghost story 7 30 in florida right now buddy. 7 30 here buddy light's still out yep 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 i'm aware but okay whatever moving on. <laughs> uh, with within months of the start of the libyan revolution the CIA had already begun building a covert presence in Benghazi. During the war, during, during the revolution, elite counter-terrorist operatives from Delta Force were dispatched to train the opposition forces on tactics and weapons. At the end of the war, the CIA and U.S. State Department were tasked with continuing to collect arms and bio, biochemical 
biological weapons from the Gaddafi regime. With a big emphasis on shoulder-fired weapons and RPGs. So we're thinking AKs, RPKs, which is basically the light machine gun version of, a, of an AK-47. And RPGs, a rocket-propelled grenade. Those are the rocket launchers. If you've ever watched any event or any news covering in the Middle East, these are Russian rockets and uh, they're all over the place so that's what they were trying to really stop from getting out of libya into other regions of the world into different factions or different terrorist organizations right eastern libya and benghazi were a hotbed of intelligence terrorists and high-risk individuals so tons of people that had either had ties to terrorist organizations were active terrorists or were in some sort of localized militia or factions that the government should at least be aware of if not taking out right so before mm-hmm. the attack the cia was monitoring uh ansar al-sharia uh, as well as suspected members of al-qaeda and the islamic uh majreb probably butchering that but majreb uh, as well as attempting to define the leadership and loyalty of the various militias present. So it's really trying to decipher, you know, think your whole government's shot to shit. Um, the U.S. has destabilized your entire government, and now all these forces are, are kind of collecting and trying to at least control their block or their region or part of town. And so the U.S. is, is trying to decipher the, the, the kind of hierarchy of all this and who they should really be paying attention to. In 2012, uh, Joint Special Operations Command, also known as JSOC, again, that's an important acronym. Uh, a little military for, acronym for you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, fun fact, we support Southcom, which is in charge of all the Caribbean and Central America for JSOC uh, at my current job. Uh, but there's also like uh, SOCOM, which is in Tampa, which oversees... Um, mainly, I believe, Africa and Europe. Then there's AFRICOM, which is Stuttgart, Germany, which oversees um, the rest of Africa as well as the Middle East. So uh, for all intents and purposes, um, the JSOC commands that will be portrayed through this event are coming from Stuttgart, Germany, because this is where the responsibilities fall. So again, JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command. What that means to a layman is that is a joint military operations. That's where you're going to have the Army, the Marines, the Navy, the Air Force, We're talking and the special operators on top of that, right? So we got the Delta Force, the Rangers, Berets, Navy SEALs, um, all those... All the extra little arms and fingers. All the badass American military guys who are fighting the badass missions, they all kind of fall under JSOC for the the most part. Again, layman's terms. Google that shit if you want to learn more. By the time of the attack, a composite uh, U.S. special operations team with two JSOC members was already in Libya working on their mission profile independently of the CIA and State Departments. In the film, in, in, in real life as well, the two JSOC members, I would imagine, would be Roan and Jack because they're the two SEALs that are in JSOC. The other four individuals, um, I know there's um, was a, a Army Ranger uh, as well as three Marines. So that's basically the squad that was already there at the CIA annex, right? Um, and their mission was really... They're, mission profile was independent of that of the CIA and the State Department operations. So this is kind of the breakdown as far as communication goes, right? Because the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, uh, even the different branches of the military, right? So you have the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marines, they all 
there's all like a, a kind of a, a dick measuring contest for lack of a better terms. <laughs> everyone, this was why it took so long to get Osama bin Laden because everyone wants the credit. So they're not sharing all the information with each other. That leads to why there's, you know, a, a, in honestly at the time, I don't think most Americans even knew what a diplomatic outpost was or that they even existed or even that there are CIA annexes all over the fucking nation, right? There's all these kind of barriers where one side of America doesn't know what the other side of America is doing because they have that wall up because it's all trying to be secretive, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the back the backstory, right? So we're talking about six badass individuals, two JSOC members, two Navy SEALs, Army Ranger, three Marines. They're already at the CIA annex. They are military contractors. They are not active in their military branches anymore. So they're no longer Navy SEALs, they're no longer Rangers, they're no longer Marines. They are working strictly a contract, going over, for lack of a better term, they're mercenaries. Government mercenaries, but still mercenaries. Not as bad as like some rich guy hiring mercenaries, but still mercenaries, basically. Now, so they're already there. Now, the instability in the region had been occurring for months, right? But it really started to heighten right before the attack. And this is when you see several... Uh, warnings that were issued to different parts of, you know, either the CIA or the State Department or within JSOC, right? So let's just kind of go over this real quick, but just so you can kind of feel how the tensions tied in. In April 2012, several minor attacks were launched on the U.S. consulate, including two previous security guards who threw an IED over the fence and an improvised explosion, explosive device over the fence and detonated it. It injured no one. Uh, but four days later, a bomb was thrown at the U.S. envoy of four cars, again, injuring no one. So these guys aren't your, you know, Mariano Rivera. They're not, um, you know, any by any means a good thrower, a good pitcher, but they were trying to kill Americans. They failed miserably. Um, and that was in April 2012, right? So in May 2012, an Al-Qaeda affiliate claimed responsibility for an attack at a Red Cross office in Benghazi in June 2012. The brigades of the imprisoned Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman released a video of what it said was its detonation of an explosive device outside the gates of the U.S. consulate on June 6th, which caused no casualties but blew a hole in the consulate's perimeter uh, perimeter wall. They, They said that this hole was like large enough for like 40 men to run through. Big fucking hole. Uh, also in June 2012, British ambassador to Libya, Dominic Asquith, survived an assassination attempt in Benghazi via an RPG, again, rocket-propelled grenade, rocket launcher, fired from 300 yards away, which is a wildly accurate shot because those are not the most accurate rocket rounds known in the world. Do you think Do you think that an RPG misses people if the person seeing it comes in yells RPG? Because I feel like it works every time in the movies. It's like playing golf and yelling four, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Every time I play golf, if I yell four, it's definitely hitting them. I've hit like six people now. <laughs> there's, there's no stability to an RPG, really. There are grooves on it, but it's basically, basically like shooting a very large potato out of a tube. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's just a bit of prayer. Yeah, they're not like an AT4 or a javelin or anything that America produces that has, um, you know, stability rudders or wings on the back or anything like that. It's really, it's a crapshoot basically past 50 yards. Like you'll see them kind of just corkscrew through the air. So the fact that they hit someone from 300 yards away, the hats off to whoever that guy was. You should probably try and do that professionally if that is a real thing. 
but uh, so again, assassination attempt three hundred yards away. The British Foreign Office removed all consulate personnel by the end of the June. So the British basically pulled out of Libya and said, "Fuck this noise. We're not dealing with this. This is not our fight." They were the first of many. By the time this attack happens, almost uh, actually not almost. I'm pretty sure every country pulled out except the United States. Uh, but also in June 2012, the Tunisian consulate in Benghazi was attacked by individuals affiliated with Ansar al-Sharia. This is the main uh, terroristic militant group in the area. In September 2012, okay, now we're going to kind of, we're going to, we're going to rush through this real quick, but then we'll break it down in more detail. September 2012, September 11th, 2012 to be specific, the day of the attack. Sean Smith and two security guards spotted an officer taking pictures of the compound and this compound is the uh, diplomatic outpost right it's basically a big ass mansion that someone leased out to the state department right they abandoned libya and leased out their their spot they were living in Uh, but they spotted the police officers taking pictures of that compound in an adjacent building that was under construction so it's kind of just going through the rafters or whatever the two by fours on the wall taking pictures of the complex they actually detained this guy uh, but ultimately they released them and they filed a simple complaint with the police station, right? Uh, Sean later that day emailed his friend around noontime saying, assuming we don't die tonight, we saw one of our police that guard the compound taking pictures. According to local security officials, he and a battalion commander had met with the U S diplomats three days before the attack and warned the Americans about deteriorating security in the area. This is going to be, not the first and certainly not the last warning of concern of get the hell out. Ambassador Stevens' diary was found at the compound where he described a growing concern for Al-Qaeda in the area and being a bit nervous he was on the Al-Qaeda hit list and the growing dissension towards America seemed to be just blossoming out of control. U.S. Security Advisor Eric Nordstrom twice requested additional security for the mission in Benghazi from the State Departments. Both attempts were denied as the U.S. wanted to keep the presence low to not alarm anyone. Again, this is the CIA. We are spies. We are clandestine. They don't want to alarm anyone. After the attack, the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs released a report called Flashing Red, a special report on the terrorist attack in Benghazi. In the months between February 2011 and September 11, 2012, leading up to the attack on the temporary mission facility in Benghazi, there was a large amount of evidence gathered by the U.S. Intelligence Committee and from open sources that Benghazi was increasingly dangerous and unstable and that a significant attack against American personnel there was becoming much more likely. While this intelligence was effectively shared within the intelligence community and with key officials of the Department of State, it did not lead to a commensurative increase in security at Benghazi nor to a decision to close the American mission there, either of which would have more than justified by the intelligence presented, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> what? You have to edit this. <laughs> go back, go back like a couple sentences. Yeah. Go back to while this intelligence was effectively shared. While this, I'm in- oh, sorry, let me go. Hold on one.
while this intelligence was effectively shared within the intelligence community and with key officials at the Department of State, it did not lead to a commensurative increase in security at Benghazi, nor to a decision to close the American mission there either, of which would have been something that would have prevented this attack. And also, either of which would have been more justified by the intelligence presented. The our uh, government at work in overseas theaters is so fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> they, they, they claim they're the best, but man, we make some serious mistakes. Did uh, we but, we work off the worst system in the world in terms of keeping ourselves checked? Like, I just the database for the military is beyond me on how we fucking operate. Anyway, continue. This is more of a like a very high level, you know, workings of the government. But I'm I'm I've never come across someone that said they had a pleasant experience at the DMV. So even at the lowest level, the government's fucking shit up. But the RSO, the regional security officer in in Libya, compiled a list of 234 security incidents in Libya between June 2011 and July 2012. Fifty of them took place in Benghazi. So now let's kind of, um, let's break down what happens here, right? So before I go into this, we're looking at two separate attacks, kind of one after the other on the only two um, foreign presences in the country, right? And the first one's going to be the assault on the diplomatic consulate towards Ambassador Chris Stevens. And then the second one is going to be at the CI annex. So the actual attack was conducted by separate military factions on two separate U.S. compounds. Mm-hmm. The first was at the Diplomatic Consulate at 9.40 p.m. The second was at the CIA Annex, 1.2 miles away at 4 a.m. and was a coordinated mortar attack on the compound, which lasted 11 minutes. This is kind of misleading because, yes, there is a mortar attack, and that mortar attack does last 11 minutes, but there are several waves of bad guys that the Americans had to fend off in the meantime just to stay alive. But before we get into that heavy fun stuff, or not the fun stuff, that's not the right word. Before, before we get into we get, the killing. Before we get into like the patriotic, badass American response, let's just go over what led to it. So the actual assault on the diplomatic consulate. Ambassador Chris Stevens was visiting Benghazi at the time to review plans to establish a new cultural center and modernize a hospital. The goal was to convert the consulate from a temporary facility to a permanent facility. Um, Ambassador Stevens has been described as what you what they refer to in the movie as a true believer. Um, you might refer to him in life as a tryhard or just a kind of zealot, right? He truly believed in the cause. He truly believed that the U.S. could help out Libya and that what he was doing was making an impact that would give them a brighter future. He was fully 100% bought into this plan. He could have stayed at a high-security hotel. He wanted to stay at the consulate. He, he thought that if he stayed somewhere else, it wasn't showing that, the, that America was committed enough to uh, Libya specifically. So Ambassador Stevens had his last meeting with a Turkish official, walked him out around 11.30 p.m., all seemed calm, all was cool. Stevens retired to his room at 9 p.m. at night. He was planning on staying in the consulate the entire day because he had been warned, like, hey, it's the anniversary of 9-11, and any time it's the anniversary of 9-11, 
all military forces are heightened in whatever region they are, especially if it somehow pertains to a Middle Eastern or um, not Muslim, but jihadist kind of mentality, right? So Which is so to- funny considering the the stuff that we're going to get to here in a little bit, like that it's heightened and yet the response time of certain things is so slow. Well, there's still the that bullshit diplomatic process that you got to go through, you know? Yeah, of course. But I'm just saying if it's September 11th, things are heightened. It would make more sense to have things more at the ready than they are, especially in an area where they already have information of an impertinent attack that could potentially happen sometime soon. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's very fair. But the important, the most important piece to realize about this entire story, I think, is that this was not a U.S. diplomatic embassy. This was a diplomatic um, outpost, right? So an embassy will have uh, marine details. It will have roadblocks so no cars can drive up and just bomb. There's a much better and much thicker security presence at an actual embassy. A lot of Americans did not even know that these diplomatic outposts existed. I mean, I'm sure pretty much everyone understands that the CIA is everywhere, and they probably have safe houses in almost every country you could think of, right, where they're operating out of. So it doesn't surprise anyone that the CIA was there in some secret safe house, which turns out to be a much larger facility. But um, I think what surprised a lot of people was that they were trying to keep this diplomatic outpost under wraps so no one knew it was there. And then when Ambassador Stevens is like, no, I'm staying here, I'm going to prove a point that we're here and we're dedicated, I think that's where it all really went wrong and so he was, he was meeting with someone and they tipped off the the local news so the local news came and then the whole damn city knew that the ambassador was there in the city and what are you going to think if you're some tactical terrorist well where is he staying how do we attack him if he's here unless he's flying out in the next two hours it's already nighttime then he's staying here so i think they kind of knew that he was staying there uh, but so at his last meeting 8 30 went to his room retired nine o'clock 9 p.m right about 9.40 p.m. local time, large numbers of armed men shouting Allahu Akbar, which means God is great, and, uh, and Islam. Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. Allah. <laughs> Sound like a kid learning learning Spanish for the first time. It's okay, Allah. So I, I understand this. No, no, no. <laughs> a lot of people say Allah Akbar, but the actual pronunciation is Allahu Akbar. Believe me, yeah, Allah I, Akbar. I have Muslim, Muslim friends, but all the Americans know it is Allah Akbar because that's what they say when they blow themselves up, right? But uh, so aside from that, large groups of people shouting Allahu Akbar coming towards the, the embassy, right? And mm-hmm. they started to throw grenades over the wall. They entered the compound. Uh, the, 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 the 17th seventeenth uh, February was like the... the um, uh, revolutionist force that that was part of overthrowing uh, Gaddafi, and they were working with the U.S. to provide additional security and help out the military. Anyway, but they were security. they were unreliable as well, too, right? Because they were very unreliable. So right. there was I don't know, probably somewhere between ten and fifteen guards, I would imagine. Uh, and basically, once all shit started to pop off, they just ran away. They're like, "Fuck it, we're not dying today." Um, so they threw grenades over the wall, entered the compound, automatic weapons fire, AKs, RPKs, RPGs, the the, the, the rocket launchers, and even heavier weapons like TAC-50s mounted on the back of, you know, 
vehicles were popping off in the, in the distance as well. Uh, a diplomatic security services agent viewed the consulate security cameras and saw a large number of men, armed men, flown into the compound. He hit the alarm and shouted over the, the loudspeaker, attack, attack. Uh, phone calls were made to the embassy in Tripoli almost immediately. The Diplomatic Security Command Center in Washington, uh, the February 17th Martyrs Brigade, and a U.S. Quick Reaction Force located at the Annex compound, again, 1.2 miles away. I'll repeat that one more time. Uh, the Quick Reaction Force, right? The QRS, which you mentioned in the past, those are your two SEALs, your one Army Ranger, your three Marines. They were only 1.2 miles away. They made calls to them. Uh, Diplomatic Security Special Service Agent uh, Scott Strickland secured Ambassador Stevens and Sean Smith, again, an IT guy for the State Department, in the main building's safe haven. So this was a big complex. complex. Uh, One of the buildings had a safe haven, and then towards the back of that, they had like almost... um, kind of like an escape room, but uh, turns out that's not the best idea in some situations. Um, But uh, the rest of the agents left to retrieve their weapons and tried to return to the main building. So they had, they basically had their um, like stronghold, their cache of weapons, if you will, in a different location within the complex. It was not in the main house where the safe haven is. So again, special agents, Scott Strickland, grabbed ambassador stevens as well as sean smith to bring them into the safe haven while other team members ran out and i think we're talking about two um diplomatic security service special agents one strickland the other one was named dave something i believe uh and then there's really like four other kind of ad hoc security guys that they had there who all left to retrieve these weapons the rest the rest of those agents agents again left to retrieve the weapons and tried to return to the main building. By then, shit had already fucking got haywire, and there were literally upwards of 100 people in that facility. In that time, attacks started storming. In, attackers started storming the complex, making their way to the safe haven. Upon reaching the safe haven, with no means of entry, because we're talking heavy reinforced steel, bulletproof to the to the shit. I mean, this is, safe room is about as safe as you can get in the Middle East. Um, they realized that they couldn't get in. They knew that Ambassador Stevens was back there. I don't think they knew that, you know, Scott Strickland or Sean Smith was back there, but they knew that Ambassador Smith was back there. So what do they do? They leave, and everyone thinks it's kind of calm for uh, a couple minutes, but they they just return with, um, what do you call it? Not tanks, but uh, whatever, containers of diesel fuel, of, of gasoline, basically. Um, and they poured out that gasoline, and they set fire to it. Um, now, Strickland, Ambassador Stevens, and Sean Smith retreated back to a bathroom, but that's not going to stop all the smoke. But after being overtaken by that smoke, they tried to leave uh, the safe haven. Strickland made his way out and was trying to get everyone to follow him. He left through a window, but Stevens and Smith did not come out. So Strickland tried to reenter several times, but could not locate Ambassador Stevens or Sean Smith. He went up to the rooftop and raided with other agents. The agents returned to the building in an armored car, got out, and went to search for Stevens and Smith, but they could not locate either. Now, according to the Annex security team, they had become aware of the, and sorry, let me backtrack. This is a CIA Annex team. This is the building 1.2 miles away that no one even knew was there. So they got word of the attacks 
you know, right after 9.30, I think they said it, it probably 9.40 is when it actually kicked off, um, and they were ready to respond. However, they were delayed by the top CIA officer who was in Benghazi. So they wanted to go. We had six badass American special ops fighters ready to go, and they were delayed. The well, security- there's a lot of controversy around that as well. Well, we will get to that. That's all. All right, all right, all right. That's all up for dispute, but it's been heavily heavily reported that they delayed the response time. And honestly, I'm not sure what effect it would have even if they got there earlier, to be 100% honest. But the regional security office sounded the alarm and called to the Benghazi CIA annex and the embassy in Tripoli. After some discussion, the CIA's global response staff, GRS, the six badasses we're going to reference over and over, uh, at the CIA annex, which included Tyrone S. Woods, also known as Roan, uh, he decided to attempt uh, a rescue by 10:05 p.m. So we're talking about 20 minutes later, after 25 minutes later uh, from the the start of the attack, uh, the team was briefed and loaded into their armored Toyota Land Cruisers. By this time, communications at the CIA annex were notifying the chains of command about current developments and the small CIA and JSOC element in Tripoli that included Glenn Doherty was attempting to find its way to Benghazi. So there was another um, CIA JSOC location in Benghazi, I mean, sorry, in Tripoli rather, which is also in Libya. Uh, And once they found out what was happening, they were trying to get over to Benghazi to help out in any way they could. The GRS team from the CIA annex arrived at the consulate and attempted to secure the perimeter and locate the ambassador and Sean Smith. They were able to locate Sean Smith's lifeless body, attempted to perform CPR, but he died from smoke inhalation. They never recovered Ambassador Stevens' body. We will cover who recovered this. If you remind me towards the end of this episode who recovered Ambassador Stevens' body, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of update everyone on that, but for the sake of sticking to the story. The Li- the Libyan forces, if I remember correctly, were the ones who recovered his body, took him to the hospital, and then the reports initially were that he was alive, if I remember correctly, and, and there was conflicting evidence whether or not he was alive, right? And then it yeah. came so- that he was, he was dead. Yeah, so it was it was actually the um, like freelance Libyan reporters, and they discovered him. They say that they turned his head just once, and they saw his eyes flickering. So they tried to take him to the hospital. Um, but yeah, okay. So jumping ahead, Ambassador Stevens also dies, right? So U.S. ambassador died in this whole process. Okay, mm-hmm. um, but they found Sean Smith's lifeless body. Tried to save him, they could not. They could not find Ambassador Stevens. The team decided to return to the annex, annex with the survivors and Smith's body. While en route back to the annex, uh, the group's armored vehicle was hit by AK-47 fire as well as hand grenades. Uh, The vehicle was able to make it back to its destination with two flat tires, uh, and the gates to the annex were closed behind them at 10.50 p.m. So they literally were trying to get out of Dodge, coming in in the most shot-up vehicle you've probably ever seen, running on two flats, get through the gate, close the day behind them, and they think they're okay. Now, a U.S. Army commando unit was sent to the Naval Air Force Station in Siganella, Sicily. I hope I'm saying that right. Naval Air Station, Sicinella, Siganella, and Sicily. Uh, anyway, that's in Italy. That's the little island off the boot, if you don't know where Sicily is. Um, this was the night of the attack, but they did not deploy to Benghazi. Okay, U.S. officials say 
that they the team did not arrive into uh, Sigonella until after the attack was over. So who knows? This was going to be probably looking at like the ar- like a, a, a group of army rangers. I, I would believe that would be probably the response squad. Would you agree with that, EJ? Yes, I would agree with that. I would say it would have to be Delta or the Rangers for a, some sort of specialized unit. I don't think they're going to send in, you know, playing privates or anything like that. But um, so well, I mean, there's no ROE in in country in Libya for uh, anyone to kind of go in and, and. You're talking about the people to go in and rescue them from the compound, right? Not for. Are you talking about? Yeah, like j- the, just to be able to provide additional support. In, in, well, in the, yeah, the only support. At least how I would understand it would be air support, but the in terms of ground support, like that takes an entire different um, operation to put new boots on the ground um, there, especially in a situation like Libya. Well, I would imagine if they were going to try and, and, and get some forces into the air quickly, it would either have to be, you know, by plane and then transit it in or, or just a straight, you know, airdrop in which would be i would imagine the airborne rangers would, would, would handle that I, I would just have to assume it'd be the rangers or some sort of specialized army forces i don't think they're going to send just a random squad in there right like not random but just not your special forces squad but there's not too many details on exactly what that squad looked like so i i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure but so they get back to the annex they probably think all this shit's fucking over but hell no it's not so now we get into the attack on the CIA annex. So just after midnight. So we're talking 940 and then they what deploy out at 10:05 and get back and then not soon after shit pops off. So just after midnight the CIA annex came under uh, machine gun, rocket and mortar fire. The CIA defenders held off the attack until the morning. The CIA defenders, when we're saying that, we're talking about the the, the quick reaction force, right? Mm-hmm. So while there are other, are other, you know, individuals in the CIA that are trained with arms, for so the most part, they were analysts. So we're talking kids that graduated from high level schools, um, nerds for the better lack of terms, because they're definitely not operators or soldiers. But for the most part, it's going to be these six guys that have to hold down this whole complex for the lives of 26 Americans, right? Maybe uh, 28, some, somewhere around there. Anyway, that same morning, Libyan government forces met up with a group of American reinforcements. This was the reinforcements coming from Tripoli. This was Glenn Doherty. Uh, he had arrived at the Benghazi airport. Um, the team, which included two active duty JSOC operators and uh, five more CIA personnel, had commandeered a small jet in Tripoli by paying the pilots. They got into some arguments of who the hell was going to get fucking paid. It delayed a little bit more. I believe the two other active duty JSOC guys were in some branch of the army. Might have been additional Rangers um, or some, maybe like a Green Beret or something, but still two badass dudes, right? Um, again, so they basically had a bag of cash on them trying to find their way there. And after being held up at well, the airport for a few hours. Yeah. That? I mean, well, those, those people, um, were, uh, contractors, like they're X mills, just like. All Wait, so people. yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Very, very good point. So we're going to refer to them in their military branches. 
but they are all ex-military guys. If you hear ex-mil or contractors, you're no longer actually working directly for that that military branch. Right. And just like in the movie, you hear like them talking about GRS, which I'm not 100% sure if that is an actual company, but think Blackwater, think any of those kind of contractor names. Like those are people who hire a lot of like high ex-military people who work in uh, extremely yeah. high combat areas and know how to handle yeah. themselves. By definition, they are mercenaries. Um, yes, exactly. Not Mercs. like some corrupt guy hires mercenaries. These guys are America, true and true. Um, they're they're taking a contract to provide security to the CIA, so they're tr- they're still trying to help out Americans, right? But it yeah. is it is important to to be noted that um, they are they are ex mil guys. They're they're not actively, um, you know, with any military branch. So there is mm-hmm. a little bit of gray area as far as operating and repercussions, stuff of that nature. Uh, but after being held up at the airport for a few hours, the Libyan forces and newly arrived Americans went to the CIA annex about 5 a.m. to assist in transporting approximately 32 Americans to the annex uh, back to the airport uh, for evacuation. So I was a little off here with like 26, 28. So 32. All, well, actually, that might be right. If it was 28 plus the six, that'd be 32 Americans total. Um, minutes after they drove through the gates, the annex. Um, I don't know. I think your bass a little off there, buddy. <laughs> 28 plus six or you say 26 oh 26 plus six yeah yeah gotcha boom uh so minutes after they drove through the gates the annex came under heavy fired with a lull on the firing right uh glenn doherty began searching for his friend uh tyrone woods roan who he had known previously and he was told he was on you know this the roof of this building so he found woods on the roof with two other agents this is when the mortar rounds coming in. So when we say 11 minutes of mortar rounds, this is at the time that, you know, Glenn Doherty, two JSAC operators and the five other CIA operators come over to help. Um, a mortar round then hits Woods' position, fatally wounding him. Uh, Glenn Doherty attempts to reposition and take cover, and a second round falls on him, killing him. So those are the two um, American contractors that uh that were killed so glenn doherty uh tyrone woods sean smith the it guy and ambassador stevens these are the four people that died during this event right Mm -hmm. um immediately several agents ran onto the roof to assess damage do basically like a, a bda a bomb damage assessment and help the wounded at the same time a jsoc operator was using a handheld device displaying images from a predator predator drone above which had been sent by the DOD's U.S. Africa Command, a.k.a. AFRICOM. Um, And the defenders agreed to evacuate to the airport and were attacked with small arms fire along the route. The evacuation of about 30 Americans, including six State Department personnel and Smith's body, they were still unable to locate Ambassador Stevens' body at that time. They get back to the airport, they evacuate, Again, we already mentioned this, but I believe it was two uh, journalists um, who were trying to cover the the war and the events in Libya that actually found Ambassador Stevens' body, turned his head, thought he was breathing, took him to the hospital. The U.S. still doesn't know if they actually did check his breathing or they honestly don't know exactly how he ended up uh, at the hospital. But regardless, four Americans die in a sequence of... I mean, as the movie's title, about 13 hours. And one thing this story doesn't go into great detail about, the one I just told, is really about the waves of attackers they had to fend off um, in between 
trying to rescue Ambassador Stevens and 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 the team over at the diplomatic outpost um, from the time they get back to the CIA annex to the time where Glenn Doherty and the uh, Tripoli team was able to come in there and help them when that 11 minute mortar attack happened that killed uh, Glenn Doherty as well as Tyrone Woods. What the movie focuses on is the time of holding that position in the meantime. And I think they go through about three waves, maybe two or three waves total in the movie, uh, trying to, uh, you know, hold that position. And um, it's very Alamo-ish. We're talking about, you know, six highly qualified individuals. I believe there was, um, I think Dave from the original State Department detail of Ambassador Stevens was up there fighting. Uh, In the movie, they portray the um, translator as fighting as well. I don't know if that's factual, but regardless, we're talking six maybe eight definitely less than i would say 14 people trying to defend a fairly large complex i think they described it as about nine acres or three football fields or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, they're lucky they had those buildings to stay on and they had that height advantage on them yeah exactly and they like you, you see them reinforcing with steel and stuff like that i mean obviously height plays an advantage from a military and tactical standpoint um, but still, when you're that outnumbered, oh, man, who knows? And uh, something that I wanted to find out, which I'm going to Google now, is how many actual, uh, like, Libyan militia died during the siege? Like, how many were did they actually, you know, eliminate? Good question. Look that up. And actually, I wanted to say as well from our beginning of our conversation about how many U.S. ambassadors have been killed, uh, that total is... Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six total. And we're talking from a time that started in, uh, and this is also since the Second World War, um, excuse me. So that we're talking six, and that's from 1968 to the last one was Chris Stevens in 2012. Um, you're looking at 1968, 1973, 74, 76, and 79. And then, all, then the next one after 79 was 2012. So... Uh, bad fucking time to be an ambassador in the seventies. Jesus you Christ! Know, that was the first time since the, in our lifetime that uh, you know we died. And it says right here, like the the last attempt was Adolf Dubs, who was killed in Kabul, Afghanistan, in nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, he what well, he died, um, and yeah, in Kabul, in Kabul, and then before that in Beirut, and that was in seventy six, uh, and then before that it was in Cyprus. Before that, Sudan, and then before that, Guatemala. So, and then uh, honestly, uh, I can't imagine World War Two or um, before World War Two how many more as well. Yeah, yeah. Or actually, maybe that's. I mean, how how I guess maybe ambassadors were different before World War Two. I actually don't know that. Uh, I don't know how that works. Sure. Um, but yeah, sorry. Did you find the information on how many uh, militants were killed in that uh, attack? Trying to find specifically how many were killed in Libya. I think it says. I don't know if this is completely accurate, but it says about seventy-five dead, one hundred forty injured. But I don't know if this is. No, I don't think this is the actual fact. You you can continue on. I'll try and find this. Cool. Well, great coverage of this, uh, really breaking down that timeline because there is a lot happening in this film. 
um, and in this film and in the real event, uh, and Bay definitely covers this film pretty accurately in terms of the timeline. Um, and again, as we were talking about at the beginning, you know, how this was handled on the U S side in terms of how we, how they engage has been debated about and debated about and debated about since 2012. Uh, and it's basically just turned into a, um, a partisan debate and which side was right and which side is trying to get more political gain out of it. And, you know, this event is largely looked at as one of the biggest failures of the Obama administration, uh, specifically towards Hillary Clinton. Um, but I wanted to start a new section and this will be in every podcast that we do called real or not. Uh, and in real or not, we're going to talk about the inaccuracies of the film or lack thereof, if there, if we should say, um, so with this one, it's a bit different because again, there's a lot of conflicting information, but from my research, this is what I, I found, um, a lot of the historical inaccuracies in the film, they can be linked to the source material. Uh, this movie that Bay uh, filmed was uh, only used the book as its source material and only used the word of the book as its source material, which was written by Professor Mitchell Zuckoff. Um, he wrote it on behalf of the, the team who defended the CIA compound. Uh, and, this and this film is specifically composed from their perspective. Michael Bay took their word as unchallengeable and without criticism. However, there's a lot more to go off of. Now, the biggest thing, and we're only going to cover really two big things here that, that happened in the film that, that are big um, argue points here. So the military air support is probably the biggest one, I would say, throughout the film. And you sh it showcases several references of military air support and how much they needed. Uh, needed it. It's noted how much it becomes redundant. It's Jesus. Let me rewind that here. So throughout the film, what'd you say? Yeah. All right. I'll hold. Good. Okay. So, uh, I mean, we could do this in post if you want to look, and we can just add this later as well. So, hold on. Okay. So, pause. So, throughout the film, there are several references of military air support and how much they need it. It's noted so much that it really does become redundant in the film. This is Michael Bay's way of show, showcasing how they never got it. He never goes as far to showcase the several – he even – Jesus, EJ, I can't speak right now. He even goes as far to showcase several planes on tarmacs ready to provide air support, specifically in Italy, which is just a hot skip and a jump away from Benghazi. 
However, that's not the case here. The House, the House Armed Services report found that the Department of Defense had no armed drones or manned aircraft prepared for combat readily available in nearby on September 11th during the time when the attack occurred. Now, according to the report, the planes in Italy were configured for training flights. None of them, the report found, were ready to fly a combat mission, and getting them ready couldn't have been accomplished until after the mission was over. The nearest armed aircraft was actually in Djibouti, which is about as far as D.C. is to L.A. It was determined that forces could be dispatched the quickest. It was determined that the forces that could be dispatched the quickest would be in the U.S., and that means they would have had to fly from Virginia to Libya to get there. However, this movie makes it seem like there were a bunch of U.S. forces lying around and ready and, and wait. But again, this is where the controversy comes in and saying that they could have easily just started one up or had a plane ready to go in, in a few minutes. But mm-hmm. I've worked on, I've worked on airfields when I was in the military. Um, and again, I was in a war zone whenever this was, you know, working with, uh, armed, uh, helicopters and armed, uh, planes, but still, uh, to get something like that ready to go in a non-combatant area, such as, Italy, it takes a lot of approval just to go up. I mean, dude, like literally the military is a motto of hurry up and wait. So like you could have everything ready to go, but it's just got to be the approval from the higher ups to get that shit started. And then you got to get it all loaded and then you got to get this started. It's, it's a process. The other big thing here from this movie uh, that is heavily debated is that there was never a stand down order given from the chief of station officer, Bob. In fact, the in fact from the Senate Intelligence Committee, the most credible official investigation to Benghazi, investigated precisely this issue, and it found that although some members of the security team expressed frustration that they were unable to respond more quickly to the mission compound, there was no evidence of intentional delay or obstruction by the chief of base or any other party. Now that being said, one contractor, Chris Paranto, insists that the standout order did in fact happen. Now, there's other stuff in here that we could cover as well. That's Pablo Schreiber's character who does a great job at it, by the way. He does do a really good job. Um, those are my two big things from the movie that were historically inaccurate uh, according to reportings and findings from the Senate Intelligence Committee and the uh, House of the... Oh, my gosh. What were they called? Uh yeah, like I'm not gonna buy into that, dude. Like honestly, I like I get there's you gotta work through the channels and everything takes time, but like you look at where Libby is, right? And like Italy's your only suggestion, dude. Like our army at that time still in Iraq, aren't we in Afghanistan, aren't we in Kuwait, aren't we in Syria? Like what like I don't we there's constant air support in those regions. So I don't see how hard it would be just to uh, acquire, you know, at least like an A10 or an AC130 or fuck, like you said in the movie, even an F16 just to fly by and just scare them. You know, I just feel like there's in that hotbed area of the world, there's so many different military bases. So I, I, it's just hard to believe that they're so pressed, especially as they're already two Americans have been killed and they're currently under an intense siege. You know, so I, I don't know about that. Uh, look, man, I agree with you. I really think it comes down to politics, and there's definitely something that fucking went wrong here. Uh, and I think there's something big to be said that they didn't want to, inc- they didn't want to have any support. They weren't even supposed to be there. They didn't want anyone to know they were there. 
Yeah. Once started popping off, I think a lot of people are trying to save face of how can we correct this situation without letting them know that we've had a CIA annex here, that we have Americans here. I feel like that took priority over like what's this, what's the safest thing for Americans right now, you know? Yep. And it's also the money talks and bullshit walks part of it too. Like how much money is this going to cost us to send airplanes up and uh, just to go save, you know, 26 people, you know what I mean? And it's also like you were just saying a place we weren't supposed to technically officially be in. So it's, there's, yeah, there's a lot to it, man. I, I mean, we could take another episode to really kind of dive into that other aspect of it and how the U S fully handled this situation, uh, and all of the, uh, legality and back and forth between the Obama administration and, you know, all of the investigations shit that would probably take another two episodes if we did that. Um, but I digress. I'm down to do it if you want to. Honestly, I could learn more about this situation. We definitely could. Sorry. So, like, I've been searching and I've not been able to find anything. And there's literally uh, no telling how many people they killed. Like, that's one of the the biggest questions. Uh, Everyone knows they're highly qualified. Um, They were they were fighting with night vision while the militants did not have night vision. Um, so no one knows exactly what the number it is, but they expect it to be very, very high. And, you know, they also carry off their dead. So, well, I don't know if we're ever, ever know. I, I would say the movie probably portrays it to be upward of 100 kills, though, honestly. Yeah, it was. I mean, at some points in that movie, it's like watching Call of Duty. Like there is yeah. just. Well, but I also don't think a small force attacks a, a U.S. consulate or a CIA annex. So I would have to assume that it would have to be large numbers to have those balls yeah very much so well yeah you're you're gonna need um a very much a large number to feel confident enough to keep on going in and wanting that attack to happen um but look jay what are your takeaways from this movie what's uh what's your consensus here um overall i really like the movie uh i mean I, i like most war movies i would say uh, I think it does a great light of um, it's a tragic story. It's it's not a some you're going to leave smiling, um, but you know you will hopefully leave that movie feeling proud. You know there's something to say about um, our military, uh, our war fighters, and I mean I, and I would say the majority of our you know civilians as well that there is when push comes to to shove. There is this deep American patriotic pride and loyalty to where if you know you're outnumbered and the chances of you dying are significant, that you still get up and you still fight because you're trying to protect other Americans. And I think that's what this film does a great job on. Mm -hmm. It really does show you that in the face of serious defeat and serious hardship that there's still people that will stand up and and take arms and, and fight until the death just to try and save one other person you know it doesn't have to be the what was it 30 
32 people. Like it, it could have literally been one or two people, and I think they would have fought just as vigorously. So that would be, you know, my main takeaway um, from a movie standpoint. I think this was, and I think you would agree with this as well. This is John Krasinski's kind of breakthrough role, getting out, breaking off that uh, comedic shell and showing that he can play the serious role. He can play your your war guy. He's also now Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan. So overall, great performance by him. Um Besides that, a lot of actors you're not going to know, and I think they, they, they wanted it that way because they want you to, to really get in the feel, and I think it's an overall uh, you know, great American story. Um, before I ask you what you think, something that we didn't you know, really talk about, and, and, and I know there's more to discuss on this story, but yeah, there's 10 investigations launched, very bipartisan. A lot of people blaming Hillary Clinton or Obama on the response times. There, for those, you know, Equate into that number of arguments, there's also a very similar number of responses, and a lot of them make sense. So um, this is some that kind of tore America apart. It was some that was put on the front line, and um, I think everyone should watch this movie. You know, everyone knows what September 11th is. Uh, I think most people love Saving Private Ryan, but that's loosely based off a true story. I mean, this is about as historically accurate as you can get on a true story, and um, this happened in our lifetime. This happened less than a decade ago, and it's a it's a really a really amazing story. And uh, you know, America persevered, took some casualties, took some significant casualties, especially considering one's an ambassador, but kept fighting, baby, because that's what it's all about. So I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I've seen it three times in the past two weeks. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. It's um, aside from your typical Bay blow em up film. Um, explosion, explosion, explosion. There was a certain respect to the way this was done. Um, you can tell that Bay, that Michael Bay has a patriotic sense to him. Um, and you're right about the uh, the people that um, protect this country and, and keep our flag flying. There is an oath that you say and sign when you join the military, and that's to fight all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, and even though these are X-Mills, they still carry that oath with them wherever they go. So, um, I, don't think that, I don't think that that oath or that pride ever leaves, man. Nope, I never does. I don't care if you, if you did your 20 and you're out, you got your pension or whatever the fuck your retirement's called in the military. Bro, I could see a fucking badass 80-year-old fucking Vietnam guy. You know, we don't really have any mini World War II vets left, but <laughs> shit, someone paid us, you'd see an 80-year-old guy out there with a rifle. You know? Oh, Absolutely. One of my favorite kind of things, if we're going to talk about just American and wars, is uh, you know Japan sneaked attacked us in uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh-huh. Everyone's aware of that. If you're not, you're probably an idiot. But um, Japan said, uh, I forgot what the leader's name was. I can't think of it right now. But he said, I, I would, you would never invade America, but because behind every blade of grass will be a rifle. And I think that as much as the political climate is fucked up right now, and it's Democrats versus Republicans. I, I truly do think that if you know a, a serious force was ever to fucking attack America, everyone's coming together again, and everyone's gonna gonna fight and be willing to die for their country. And there's something weirdly, oddly romantic with that idea. You know, there really is. Like that death could be so. Well, cool. yeah. I mean, that's like considered why you call World War II the greatest generation because they were the ones who signed up. They were the ones who saw their country under attack, and they still 
jumped into the front lines to go fight. I'm not saying there'd be some people that are like, you know, are, are bitching or complaining if we had a draft because I think there's definitely some softies out there. But I think for the most part, people would would drop all the partisan politics, realize that there is something larger at hand and, and, and would unite once again. I crack a lot of jokes. Saying that I think it would be less. Right. I think it would be less now than it was back in yeah, yeah, 40, yeah. Oh. 41. A hundred percent, but I still think there's a significant amount of people. There's a significant American force that if you ever come to this fucking land trying to kill us, like, we're getting you. And I think that, that's how the military does a, a great job. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be as unpartisan as I can. I got a lot. I mean, we could have a whole episode on this, honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm being very nice. Um, yeah, you are. I, I asked him to be nice, guys. I asked him. I said, he there's. Did. He did. So I'm, I'm trying to be as. As bipartisan as I can, uh, yeah, there would definitely be left though. There would definitely be less people, and uh, there'd be a lot more crying and complaining about it. But we're oh gonna get God. into that right now. Yeah, please. I, this now you're entering my territory where I want to complain. I, I'm. Uh, yep. So, uh, but I did enjoy this film a lot, and and the patriotism is real here. I love, um, I love war movies. I love war stories. I love looking at. History and how wars were won and fought. Um, I find it fascinating. I think World War II is my favorite. Not I think World War II is my favorite um, history to look into. It's what I read the most and watch the most about. Um, but like this type of stuff, diving into, I, I think Interesting. it's because I'm, I'm I'm like a big revolutionary and uh, Civil War buff. See, I like but those my, two. My dad is like the biggest World War II buff I've ever met in my life. Like, yeah, he reads a ton. So I, I always, I grew up really interested in the Revolutionary War and the Confederate War because they're just, they just, that was a completely different style of warfare. Oh, yeah, dude. You're going to stand shoulder to shoulder and shoot. So I kind of grew up interested in that, but I was brought up with, with my dad who's such a World War II buff that that's probably the war I respect the most. But it's also more of the the kind of common wars that we would fight now. Yeah, not all out war, you know. But it's well, we wouldn't be fighting as many people as yeah. But it's it's more guerrilla based and like stand shoulder to shoulder and just bang out with your musket, you know. But um, yeah, dude, I I think the 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 movie does a great job. Hits the soft spot, America. Fuck yeah, let's go, baby. Let's go, yeah. Oh yeah, baby. Um, but thanks guys for tuning in. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, more content to come we're still figuring out our episodes but these are planned to be weekly so tune in and thanks for listening to the based on real events podcast aka boar but we answer <laughs> dude the other day i was i was uh i was or file organizing everything and i typed it out i had to like type out boar on earth point. i was like oh man if this ever if this ever catches on <laughs> it's fire but we Maybe- have to keep Entertained, man. Maybe we call maybe we call our fan base the boredom. The boredom, man. Like we, can, uh, we, we can do that for sure. But uh, as always, I am Jay Kington, joined by Mr. Edward Jordan Golett. We call him EJ. You call him whatever you want. He won't mind. Call He's me Daddy. <laughs> He's coming from <laughs> South California. So, uh, sorry, Daddy Golett. I don't really have much else to say. Salute to all our veterans out there, man. Everybody fighting. Salute to all our veterans. And anyone that is currently waging war or uh, has previously. And to all the future ones that are waging war. 
um, yeah, you're what makes America proud, baby. We love you so much. Uh, if you haven't checked out the movie, peace out. Pause. Are you pausing it?